This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 15th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. How have states responded to widespread protest in 2020 over police abuse? And what's the trend in state laws for criminal justice more broadly? Robert Alt, in a report for the Federalist Society, details how states alter their criminal justice systems. We spoke last month. A lot has happened uh, since we last spoke about uh, criminal justice reform and what states are doing uh, on criminal justice reform. Uh, I, at the time, lived in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, which had you know, a pretty bad year in 2020, all things considered, both uh, as everybody else had with the pandemic, but also the killing of an unarmed woman in her own apartment by police uh, searching for drugs. Uh, and I, I wonder about the reforms that states have made in the wake of the death of George Floyd and that sort of thing. So to begin here, what kind of reforms have we seen to either policing or how police interact with average people? So I think uh, if you take a look back at 2020, that really was one of the dominant themes uh, following George Floyd's death. State and local governments enacted policing policy changes designed to make law enforcement agencies more transparent and accountable through civilian oversight boards. They modified police training techniques and tactics through ban on chokehold restraints and use of crowd control weapons. Um, a lot of this was done through state and local initiative process. Uh, if you you took a look and just you know sort of a tremendous amount of that, but in, in addition, uh, uh, there were some some statutory changes. So one that's probably worth highlighting just to give an example of the broad range of reforms that we saw was Colorado. Uh, it in, enacted two policing bills covering a broad range of police activities. So, for instance, it required officer dismissal for unlawful use of force, required officers to give crowds at protests and demonstrations advance notice before using crowd control agents such as pepper spray and tear gas, it banned qualified immunity as a legal defense for law enforcement officers in civil actions alleging violations of constitutional rights. It banned the use of chokehold restraints. Uh, it required officers to intervene if another officer uses unlawful force. I mean, that seems to be uh, you know absolutely 100% directed at the scenario that we saw uh, in the Floyd uh, issue. Uh, it requires officers to use a legal basis for stopping an individual and requires officers to, to wear body cameras and release all recordings of incidents to the public within 21 days after the incident. So a pretty, you know, the, that was probably one of the bigger packages, but you saw quite a bit of this. As I said, many states went on to ban chokeholds. You look at a state like New York, which went further by making aggravated strangulation by police officer a new crime. Um, and so, you know, this, uh, this I think, was, was sort of the general thing. But as usual, uh, when we're looking at sort of the, the way that states approach it, different states approach this question differently. Uh, Tennessee actually enhanced penalties for offenses uh, associated with riots and protest activities. So you you saw, you know, in response to some of the civil unrest that happened after Floyd's death, you saw Tennessee go the other way and you know, crack down on on unrest. Yeah. So uh, to what extent was there overlap? Uh, that is to say, some states seem to have uh, created new crimes or harsher penal penalties for police who who violate people's rights 
but uh, as, as you mentioned, Tennessee making it uh, a little more dicey to engage in a lot of protests. So, you know, was were there states that did both? You know, I don't recall actually saying that the number of states that sort of increased the penalties with regard to protest were, were outliers, I'd say, overall on the year, despite the fact that obviously in, uh, the people across the country were outraged with some of the property destruction and crime that occurred uh, during some of the unrest. But that seemed to be, you know, I, I think for the most part, perhaps this was a rational response by the public, which is to say, those issues were adequately addressed by laws that were already on the books. Um, it already was illegal to set fire to a business. And so we didn't need to pass a new law to address that. All right. So uh, with respect to policing New Mexico uh, this year and Colorado last year, I, I don't know if you mentioned uh, with respect to Colorado, they eliminated qualified immunity. Yes. Yes. No, that that was a, a uh, pretty substantial change in law. And you've got uh, you've got a a, a broadened uh, move to re-examine this. There was the Justice Thomas uh, dissented from the denial of review in a case with regard to qualified immunity, asking whether or not we should re-examine this doctrine. And so I think you've you've seen both within sort of the think tank and scholarly community a critical re-examination of this, but you've now started to see states actually enact that into law. So Colorado, as I mentioned, I think the first out of the gate uh, to actually do that. A, a lot of states... Uh had difficulties dealing with uh, prison populations in uh, during a pandemic. Uh, did any of them alter their rules governing, you know, to the, the extent to which they're keeping people in prison uh, versus allowing them to go on some sort of home confinement? Or what, what happened with sentencing broadly? And to what extent are states with respect to prisons better prepared for a pandemic down the road. So uh, a number of states w went ahead and engaged in some form of early release program. Uh, some of them did it, did this through their uh, through their the functional equivalent of their Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections. Um, you know, a common a common theme that we saw was releasing individuals within X days of the end of their their sentence. Oftentimes, there were restrictions associated with this. Um, you know, they weren't going to go release people who were habitual sex offenders, certain violent crimes. I know in Ohio, for instance, um, you know, violent criminal, you know, certain violent criminals, including particularly anyone who had been convicted of murder, was not eligible for early release, even if, uh, you know, otherwise the terms might have permitted it. Uh, uh, this has probably been... A, one of the more controversial uh, uh, themes from last year, as you've seen questions with regard to the increase in, in crime rates, particularly in some of the in, in cities like New York. One of the questions is to what extent did the early release contribute to that? I don't think we've actually got data that actually supports that, but it certainly has become a point of speculation. Um, and so it will be interesting to see later on if there's a data with regard to how many if any of the crimes new crimes were committed by individuals who were who were out on early release yeah more broadly though what do we know about the relationship between relatively uh lighter or i, I would argue more rational sentencing and crime rates 
in uh, major cities and and states. Yeah, and and so I mean, this is uh, you know, this also has been a major issue with regard to uh, with regard to bail reform. So uh, New York, obviously, this became a flashpoint. We talked previously about some of their bail reforms, uh, and and this became. Uh, you know, a, a a significant point of contention. One of the major issues there, though, is sort of how it is that they actually effectuated the bail reform compared to some of the other cities that were considering it. Um, bail reform actually in 2020 had a fairly significant setback in California. There was a major initiative on the ballot, which actually failed, uh, which would have reformed the cash bail system. You know, I think those bail reforms that have been most effective have been those that actually uh, look at the question of keying pretrial detention specifically to the two goals of public safety and appearance at trial and recognizing that high cash bail does not necessarily assure public safety uh, at the Baca Institute. For instance, we've done a number of studies that have looked at individuals who were capable of actually posting high bail, but nonetheless can continued to pose a threat to society. So having someone who's able to actually post a $100,000 bail does not necessarily mean that they're not going to actually go out and wreak mayhem. Uh, you know, in those situations, we want to actually take a look at the uh, at the risk that the potential offender poses to society, not not simply on their ability to pay uh, a pretrial bail bond. So yeah, it's good. There's no, there's no obvious relationship between somebody's level of wealth and their likelihood to reoffend or fail to appear in court. Yes, and, and and the flip side of that is you've got a number of individuals, and this is where you really end up having some. Uh, 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 some issues in terms of public policy. You've got a number of individuals who are picked up and aren't able to post relatively de minimis amounts of money. And so they end up serving, uh, you know, jail sentences prior to their trial, where number one, they don't really pose any serious risk to society or, or risk of flight. Uh, we're paying a significant amount of money to house them pre-trial, so it's a it's a a cost to the city uh, in terms of this policy, and then the individual who's being held pre-trial who has not been found guilty of an offense is in a situation where they very likely are losing their job, they may be losing their housing, you know, all of which makes them less a less productive member of society. So, you know, this is this is something where, um, you know, particularly on the low on the lower end, you know, on some of these relatively minor offenses, this can be devastating to the individual. It's very costly to the community and it doesn't really serve any any uh, any purpose in terms of preventing future crime. Are there any clear trends that we saw, uh, you know, extending from previous years through 2020 in uh, sentencing or various reforms to the justice system? Well, I think probably the biggest one, which we've we've chatted about when I've done uh, done uh, uh, my review of previous white papers that I've done for the Federalist Society analyzing the trend in criminal justice across the states is with regard to drug crimes. And we continued to see a liberalization at the state level. Seven states legalized uh, uh, or reduced state law restrictions on marijuana use and possession, which continues a multi-year trend. Um, 
Vermont and Virginia amended their marijuana statutes through the legislatures uh, with Vermont decriminalizing possession, but not the sale of marijuana and Virginia effectively legalizing possession of up to one ounce of marijuana uh, and provided for sealing of post marijuana conviction records. Five states, Arizona, Mississippi, Montana, Oregon and South Dakota uh, changed the law through ballot initiatives. Uh, And so by my by my last count, 15 states in the District of Columbia now have legalized adult recreational marijuana use, uh, and 36 states have legalized marijuana use for medicinal purposes. Probably the most interesting among the states, uh, just in terms of change, you know, sort of the broadest change uh, in terms of policy was Oregon, uh, which had already uh, adopted uh, a bill legalizing recreational marijuana in 2015. Uh, it's now adopted some of the most lenient drug rules thus far, legalizing adult and juvenile possession of small amounts of heroin, cocaine, LSD, and other drugs. Um, Oregon also passed a major legalizing psilocybin mushrooms for uh, medicinal use, authorizing therapists to prescribe these mushrooms to patients with chronic mental health issues and terminal illnesses. So, uh, so again, I'd say uh, in terms of trends, uh, trends for 2020, that you see a continuation of the liberalization of the drug laws in the states, including expanding it from simple marijuana and Oregon to other drugs. You saw um, a pretty broad trend with regard to um, modifying policing rules uh, with a number of states uh, jumping into the fray there. Uh, You saw a pretty significant trend related to COVID and early release across the states. Those are probably the biggest trends. Other things worth paying attention to uh, that I think, you know, folks particularly on the free market side of things would be interested in um, uh, was a a uh, growing trend in occupational licensing reform focused on uh, former offenders. And, you know, particularly, I think this is one where I think a constricting labor market uh, has actually created quite a bit of an impetus, both by legislatures and by the business community to seek out individuals who previously they, you know, may not have been as interested in getting back into the workforce. Uh, And so, um, three states, Iowa, Missouri, and Ohio, passed laws easing op- occupational restrictions on ex-offenders. Iowa's, you know, is is a you know perhaps uh, uh, a good example um, of of a, a change in law. Uh, they declare that a licensing board may deny or revoke a license on account of a criminal conviction only if that board finds by preponderance of the evidence that either the individual has been convicted of an offense that directly relates to the duties and responsibilities of the profession, or there's been a founded report of child abuse against that person. So that, I think, is a promising trend that we're seeing across the country uh, with regard to occupational licenses. And, you know, this, uh, again, this is one of those areas you you can tell by the tailoring of that. I mean, it's a little bit of tricky business where you, you you don't want the sex offender working in a daycare. I mean, there are restrictions that make sense, but there are some pretty broad scale restrictions. We've talked about this in the past, I think, where, um, you know, back uh, a number of years ago, Ohio, Texas, some other states in their in their prisons, they would train, uh, you know, sort of individuals who had been convicted of felonies with barbering as a skill. But then, in fact, the 
the barbering or cosmetology commissions would have placed restrictions, which made it impossible for an individual convicted of a felony to get a license. I mean, these are the sorts of things that make no sense. And so we've been able to chip away at some of those one at a time. I think in both Texas and Ohio, for instance, the, the states ultimately eliminated those restrictions. But you know, it's one of those things you peel back the first layer of the onion and you find additional layers. So right now in Ohio, for instance, the number one training program uh, for individuals who are incarcerated for felonies is HVAC repair and installation, which again, this is a good, you know, a good profession to train these folks into, but there are extensive restrictions with regard to practicing HVAC in terms of their ability to get licenses. So we're looking at that, the, this new law that passed in Ohio will help it. It's a much broader scale approach uh, uh, to that particular problem. Yeah, it's interesting to see, you know, so many states have legalized uh, cannabis for either medical or uh, recreational purposes, and people who may have faced convictions for felonies related to cannabis can't participate in that market. Mm-hmm. And that it, it seems it seems odd for two reasons. One is, you know, you've legalized it. Why can't we wipe some of those uh, crimes off of off of these people's records, but also maybe there's a lot of institutional knowledge there. Well, and you know, and and to that point, a num- you know, some states have begun to address those sorts of issues through expungement uh, statutes. And so, Michigan, for instance, this past year passed a major expungement statute, uh, making it easier for individuals to to go ahead and get a clean slate uh, after they have served their time. And that's a trend that you're also continuing to see across the states, particularly with, you know, and, and I think the example you gave is. Uh, is key, particularly as the states have begun to liberalize their drug policy. Uh, many of them have uh, concomitantly, even if they're not doing broader scale expungement uh, provisions, they're passing special expungement provisions with regard to prior drug offenses. Uh, something else I think is worth taking a look at is in the Fourth Amendment context, search and seizure um, modifications that were made. Two states passed reforms I think are worth noting. The first, Michigan passed uh, a proposal which amends the state's constitutional protections against warrantless searches uh, and seizures of a person's house or possessions uh, to explicitly include electronic data and communications. Um, you know, this is one where under the Supreme Court's recent decision at Riley, that would be covered. But I, I think in this particular case, they were seeking to make it clear that state law comports with that with that broader understanding. The other law worth noting, I think, is Virginia, which passed a law modifying search and seizure protocols for routine traffic stops. Um, Essentially, the statute prohibits uh, law enforcement from stopping vehicles for certain petty offenses. Think about operating a vehicle without an without your license plate light, or or without a brake light, or with an exhaust system that has excessive noise, window tinting, you know these sorts of petty violations. Um, under this, evidence obtained as a result of an unlawful stop, which is to say a stop for those purposes, is inadmissible in any trial or other proceeding. The law also provided that an officer may not lawfully stop, search, or seize any person, place, or thing solely on the basis of the odor of marijuana. And I think you know that that is another one of these cases where you take a look at the impact of the modification. Virginia passed a law which 
functionally, what it did is I think it reduced minor possession to like a $25 fine. Uh, um, so they, it functionally decriminalized uh, simple marijuana possession. And so along with that, they went ahead and modified the rules with regard to searches and seizures related to the sm- to odors of marijuana. Yeah, it's weird because, the, you know, in 20 years ago, uh, the smell of marijuana is probable cause anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, boy, it's really would be really hard to argue that it is probable cause anywhere, given that you could uh, possess a legal plant that smells like pot, but isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. And 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 again, I mean, I think it this would uh, this would seem to be a logical change based upon how it is that Virginia you know, treated simple possession. Uh, it, the, the change here, I think, though, it, the broader change with regard to sort of the minor offenses, really, it's, it's sort of an interesting change in light of you know, prior Supreme Court precedent with regard to, uh, you know, what we commonly refer to as pretextual stops, uh, which is to say, you know, under the Wren decision uh, from the Supreme Court in 1996, if the officer has a basis for pulling someone over, say, the taillight out and so forth, that can be, that that is a legitimate stop and the officer can then engage in an investigation uh, for other illegal activity. And the court isn't going to look in that circumstance as to what the subjective motivation is of the officer. If the officer pulled over an individual, you know, believing that perhaps they had that there was some other criminal activity, that there were drug use, but he wouldn't have had a legal basis for pulling them over for that. If he has a basis with regard to the taillight out or something, he can pull them over and engage in the investigation. This is essentially... Uh, it is a fairly significant shift because that modifies you no longer they, it, the officer can no longer rely upon the minor violation to pull over the vehicle. And it's expressed under the statute that any evidence that would be found pursuant to that unlawful stop would be inadmissible. Robert Alt is president of the Buckeye Institute and author of a new report for the Federalist Society detailing how states alter their criminal justice systems. We spoke last month. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 